0: RAC's post podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. While most of us have been impacted in some way from the COVID-19 pandemic, the crisis has also exposed the health vulnerabilities of Indigenous people. That's according to neurosurgeon Dr Ruth Mitchell. Deputy Chair of the Foundation for Surgery and member of the Indigenous Health Committee. She says an important part of our response with tackling the pandemic is addressing inequalities of health outcomes, and that includes the collection of meaningful data, which she explained shortly. Although the COVID-19 virus doesn't discriminate, Chris Ashmore asks Ruth whether some sections of the community are impacted more than others.
1: The language I've been using is I've been saying that actually coronavirus does discriminate, but it does so because we do. And we know that before this global pandemic came along, there were a great number of inequalities in our communities and in the societies that we live in. And I think what COVID-19 has done is it's really heightened and laid bare those inequalities. And it's shown ways in which people have lack of access to health care, to good health information, aren't often the target of health promotion activities. And as a result, they're at risk of being much more vulnerable to really adverse health outcomes during this pandemic. And so I think that's something we have to grapple with as a community.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, what are your thoughts then on the impact on urban and isolated Aboriginal communities now that we've passed, well, perhaps we've passed the peak of the crisis?
1: That's a really good question. I think we certainly hope we've passed the peak of the crisis. As we're recording this, we're at a stage where In a number of states, restrictions on movement and catch-ups with friends and other activities are beginning to ease. In other places, they remain quite firm. And, of course, in in New Zealand, things are easing as well from having been a very strict lockdown. I think that what we've been worried about in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on both urban and isolated Aboriginal communities is far from over we don't know that we're genuinely past the worst of this pandemic in Australia and New Zealand, although we certainly hope that we are. What we do know is that our isolated Aboriginal communities have been very vulnerable through this period here in Australia, because often we're dealing with communities with language barriers, with a limited supply chain of essential goods, with already precarious access to health services and very close living conditions. And the conditions in which, if there was an introduction of the virus into that community, it would take off very rapidly. And some of that actually applies in the urban setting as well, where quite a number of our Aboriginal communities live in in high density areas. And I think that we've seen across the world that those high density living situations are a real vulnerability to rapid spread of the virus. So, as I say, I hope we're past the peak and I hope we're out of the woods, but I think we need to remain very vigilant and continue to be actively working to ensure the safety of the most vulnerable members of our community. Well,
2: you mentioned language and not everyone has English as their first language. How important is it to supply information in other languages?
1: Look, I think it's really a critical point. I think having clear and accurate up-to-date information has been a huge challenge for governments and for people who do health promotion activities, even in the main dominant language here in Australia and and also New Zealand that tends to be English, although in New Zealand messaging has also been done in Māori. Here in Australia, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are an extremely ethnically but also very linguistically diverse community. I think that it's really important that key health messages be passed on to people in their mother tongue where that's possible. So one of the things that myself and others have been pushing for is to make sure that health messaging around coronavirus is actually done in language. And there's been some amazing examples of this done well. I'm very proud to be an associate member of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association and I'm extremely excited by the ongoing partnerships between the College of Surgeons and AIDA. And there have been some really lovely, really powerful examples of Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander doctors and medical students explaining these health messages either in English or actually in Aboriginal language with their family members or Torres Strait Islander language to their communities. And I think Those pieces of messaging are critically important. If people want to take something to heart, it has to speak to them at their deepest level. And so I think getting important, up-to-date information out in language is is really important and it's, it's very hard to do. It's not something that we normally do well in this country.
2: Now, can you explain Indigenous data sovereignty and why is it so important to collect meaningful data?
1: Oh, this is so important, I think. So just a bit of a backstory on why this is important. So we really want to know what the impact of this pandemic is on our Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and Māori communities. But we have to make sure that data is collected to enable that in a way that is responsible. And the historical perspective comes from the pandemic of 1918. What we know from New Zealand is that the Māori mortality rate was seven times that of non-Māori people, and that's because they collected those data in New Zealand. And that's a terrible thing to think about, seven times the mortality rate. And you might think, well, what do the numbers look like in Australia? And it's absolutely devastating to discover that we don't know how many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were lost due to deaths in the pandemic of 1918 because deaths were not recorded by the Australian health authorities at that time for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I think that's a really scathing indictment of the way that we have treated these communities for a very, very long time. And so in this pandemic, we have to take care to not just collect data, but collect data using this principle of Indigenous data sovereignty. And I think that that means that basically the people about whom data is collected need to have ownership of it. So it's the right of Indigenous people to govern the collection of, the ownership of, and the application of their data. And I think ultimately the phrase I like to think about when working in this space, is nothing about us without us. So when something has something to do with Indigenous communities, people, land and resources, we have to make sure that Indigenous data sovereignty is maintained so high-quality health data can be collected in a way that is truly ethical and therefore of the most use to the communities that we're trying to partner with.
2: Absolutely. And, I mean, there's also secondary impacts and other ongoing issues that may affect Aboriginal communities as a result of or exacerbated by COVID-19 as well, isn't there?
1: Oh, very much so. The things that worry me are that the whole time that we've been staying home and washing our hands and trying not to touch our faces and, you know, it's been many, many weeks now. And during most of that time, people haven't been attending healthcare in the way that they usually do for their normal problems. And The usual burden of disease we know is already higher in our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities here in Australia, and we know that the same case in the Maori communities in New Zealand. And we have late presentations of people with things like cancer and people coming in very late in the course of their disease. This might have implications for how well that disease can be treated or if, in fact, it can be treated And so we already have had access issues, and this really makes that worse. And I think that as we've reprioritized health resources quite appropriately to free up space in hospitals, free up personal protective equipment, and obviously human resources in terms of healthcare professionals, Inequalities develop as we redirect resources, because often the kind of measures that have been put in place to ensure health services are as equitable as they can be are the first things to be stripped away when we redirect resources. So we're going to see, I think, a number of waves of morbidity and mortality associated with this pandemic, even in countries that have had, by global terms, relatively few cases of coronavirus and these peaks are going to be around the diseases that have presented late, the cancers and so forth, which are of enormous relevance to surgeons, but also the mental health impacts of going through a time of crisis and the implications of the economic downturn that will inevitably follow and all of the other factors that feed into that. And so we're going to see a number of waves of illness. And I think we need to take on board now that these things are not going to break evenly either. And so we need to be very careful to centre equity in our health policy and in our resource allocation. Mm.
2: What do you feel needs to happen and what do you fear might happen if we don't take steps now to address these impacts on Indigenous communities?
1: We have to continue to centre the voices of people who are working to ensure the safety of their communities. We've been thinking about the pre-existing conditions that make patients who get coronavirus more likely to die. So we think about the fact that older people do less well, people with cardiac problems do less well. But we need to understand inequality is a pre-existing condition and we need to take this as an opportunity to address that because it doesn't just make Indigenous communities vulnerable, it makes all of us vulnerable. I think we've called for a number of... Myself and a group of other concerned doctors have called for a number of initiatives and I think working with people like Ken Wyatt, who's in Australia, our Minister for Indigenous Australians, thinking about ways in which we can strengthen the health worker support that exists, particularly in remote communities, whether it's through training, testing or isolation facilities for them, thinking about the way we get medication that needs a cold chain to Indigenous communities this is an opportunity for us to strengthen some of those features. And we've talked about the need for clear and up-to-date information and in language. And I think we could improve the pipelines in which we use to get health information to people. I think continuing to center the work of young leaders, we're very fortunate in the College of Surgeons to have a group of emerging leaders in the Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and also Maori spaces. And I think one of the things we can continue to do is to give them a platform and listen when they tell us what they need to help their communities. And then we need to take that on board as our job, because I think that grappling with these challenges alongside Aboriginal communities, for me, it's part of paying the rent of living as a settler on unceded, sovereign Aboriginal land. So I think there's a lot of work to do and we need to keep doing it.
0: Dr. Ruth Mitchell, RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 311.